Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. everybody. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, we're so excited to have you here today um, to have this conversation with everyone. I think it's a timely one and an important one to cover. And I'm really, really excited to have um, so many wonderful speakers here today. Um, I'm going to open with a couple of, of just opening remarks. Um, when you came in, I hope that you had the chance to grab um, our hot off the presses paper. Um, this new paper is looking at the next steps for the U.S. to hold the Burmese military accountable for its human rights violations. Um, this is really building on, I think, overarching heritage research that's been urging the U.S. government to consider broader reforms to U.S. policy toward Burma. Um, but it was written specifically in response to the latest U.N. report, the fact-finding missions reports on the vast Burmese military's economic interests. I think that um, any casual observer of Burma cannot ignore the Burmese military. And I think it's really impossible to study Burma without understanding some of the complex power-sharing dynamics that exist between the civilian government and the mil military um, power-sharing arrangement. The system itself has, frankly speaking, enabled impunity. It's enabled human rights violations, and it is without question the root of the problem. Um, when the Rohingya crisis took place in August 2017, it was a symptom of this broader problem that the world could no longer ignore, couldn't deny, um, and could no longer hold out hope that fundamental transformation had taken place after the 2015 elections. I think at the heart of this issue is uh, a, a central issue that all of us have talked about for a while. That's accountability. The Burmese military is not accountable to its citizens. They do not view their job as the preservation of first freedoms and of human rights. They demonstrated through their treatment of the Rohingya, but also other minority groups in Shan and Kachin State and otherwise, that the Burmese military views it as their right to violate the rights of other individuals. That audacious claim that the Burmese military continues to carry out and live out really demands a response. And that is why I wrote this paper and have written several other papers focusing on these issues. Um, I just wanted to highlight um, very briefly a couple of the solutions that we highlight. There are many other recommendations that are in this paper, but there are three that I wanted to draw your attention to in particular. The first is that um, the U.S. should really be considering more severe sanctions measures, um, not just using pre-existing authorities like the Jade Act or using Global Magnets Key, which Treasury has in order to target individuals on the basis of corruption or human rights grounds, but also looking at some of the more obscure tools, uh, for example, in the anti-money laundering counter-terrorist financing, including <coughs> Section 311 of the USA Patriot Act, which enables Burma to be designated as a primary money laundering concern. 
those sanctions shouldn't just be limited to individuals. They shouldn't just be visa restrictions, as we've seen the U.S. government already put into place earlier this year in July 2019, but they should be financial sanctions, and they should have implications that hit the Burmese military where it really hurts, which is in their pocketbook. The second would be that the U.S. government needs to issue a legal determination on the atrocity crimes that were committed. There's substantial evidence both from the U.N. but also from other civil society organizations that genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes may have taken place. And so there's a strong need for the U.S. as a global leader to uh, issue that determination. And third and finally, the U.S. government needs to consider a broader reset to its policies toward Burma, not just in light of the Rohingya crisis, but in light of the fact that impunity, human rights violations, and freedom um, continue to, to occur there and should be put to a stop. So now I want to turn to the part of the show that you all are most looking forward to, which is our other remarkable panelists, which I'm very excited to host today. Um, we're going to go in a little bit of a circuitous order, I think. Um, we're going to have Dan Sullivan speak first. Um, Dan is the Senior Advocate for Human Rights at Refugees International. He focuses on um, Myanmar, Sudan, South Sudan, and other areas affected by mass displacement. Prior to joining um, Refugees International, Dan worked for five years with United to End Genocide, which was formerly Save Darfur, first as a senior policy analyst, then as director of policy and government relations, leading strategic planning, report writing, and development of policy recommendations on Myanmar, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, and prevention of genocide and mass atrocities. He also has a robust set of other experiences um, that I would refer you to in his bio. Um, the second speaker that we are going to turn to is Matt Smith. Matt is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Fortify Rights, a human rights organization based in Southeast Asia that supports human rights defenders and investigates human rights violations, combining two commonly separated areas of the human rights movement. Um, he has been published extraordinarily widely and actually right now is um, at the Carr Center at Harvard where he's doing a fellowship there. Um, then we're going to turn to Weiwei Nu, who is a, a political prisoner for seven years under the Burmese military government. Um, she was released in 2012 other, under a presidential amnesty. She is currently the executive director and founder of Women Peace Network, a platform that built peace and mutual understanding between uh, Myanmar's different ethnicities and attempts to empower and advocate for the rights of marginalized women in Iraq and Myanmar, and focuses primarily on campaigning for women's rights issues, among a number of other illustrious um, activities that she's engaged in. And then uh, finally, we'll have Francisco Bencosme, who is the Asia uh, Pacific Advocacy Manager at Amnesty International USA. Francisco has testified before Congress and has provided media commentary on multiple outlets including the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Um, in 2018, Francisco was named one of the Hill's top 2018 lobbyists for his campaign on Burma and Rohingya issues. Um, and prior to that, he served as a professional staff member on the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he assisted Democratic senators on issues related to East Asia Pacific and a host of other issues. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dan to kick off our conversation. All right, thank you. Thank you, Olivia. Um, and uh, happy to be on this, this, this great panel and, and looking forward to hearing from everyone. And um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I think that the main point is that uh, not only have some of the uh, abuses that Olivia talked about and others will, will talk about and that have been 
well covered by the UN fact-finding mission, State Department reports, other human rights groups reports. Not only have those happened in the recent past, but they're they're ongoing. Uh, I think that's really important to uh, to stress. Um, uh, but first, just a, a quick word on Refugees International, that we're um, an independent um, advocacy organization, uh, that we don't take any government uh, funding, and we don't have uh, operations in the field, which kind of gives us a, a chance to be uh, independent. And so I've been going to uh, to Bangladesh over the last several years from before the, uh, the August uh, uh, mass expulsion that happened. Um, and then several times since, and we'll actually be heading back uh, tomorrow uh, to kind of get the latest on the, the humanitarian situation and, um, and and various things that are happening there, which I'll touch upon uh, briefly. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, you know not just uh, the recent past, but ongoing. My my last trip to to Bangladesh, I spoke with several Rohingya who had just come across uh, the border from Myanmar, so or or Burma. Uh, so this is something that it's it's nowhere on the the level that it was at the at the height of the crisis, but there still are people coming over, and what they tell you is that uh, a lot of these abuses are happening, and in in many ways the the situation there is actually getting worse. So when we're talking about uh, more than seven hundred thousand who came across to Bangladesh, nearly a million Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh, and um, some six hundred thousand maybe who are are still in Rakhine State. Um, a lot of discussions about uh, are going on about the returns uh, and, and repatriating the uh, Rohingya from Bangladesh. But uh, the, the sad reality is um, that uh, the conditions are nowhere near conducive to returns in Rakhine State. And as I said, uh, you know, speaking to people who have who've been there recently or recently come from there, it's um, in many ways getting worse. And uh, and that's in, in a, a few different ways. One is the uh, the dynamic this this past year with the Arakan army and the fighting um, with the uh, Myanmar military, um, which has, has has affected Rohingya as well, um, and added increased restrictions, including uh, internet blackouts. Um, there's the the whole policy of the national verification cards and. Several people that I uh, I interviewed said that they were forced to accept them. Um, and uh, whereas the the officials in Myanmar will tell you that's that's a way of providing a potential uh, path to citizenship that's um, far from the truth and and, and something that uh, the Rohingya themselves um, understandably do not do not believe. There's uh, a lot of precedent for um, falling uh, for the uh, Myanmar officials uh, authorities pulling back on those kinds of things. Um, but the reality is that you know people I spoke with talked about ongoing sexual violence, um, forced labor, um, uh, increasing restrictions on, on people's uh, freedom of movement. Um, and uh, even where there's uh, talk of, you know, there's uh, still some 120,000 plus Rohingya who have been in camps uh, since 2012, um, and uh, talk of Closing those camps, and uh, you know, Myanmar uh, officials have said that they're they're moving forward according to the uh, the Kofi Annan Commission's recommendations. But in reality, to the extent that any camps have been closed, they've basically just built some structures right next to those camps, and and sort of said, okay, now this is a village and no longer a camp, but it's effectively the same thing. Um, so uh, all these these kinds of things, just to say that things aren't getting better, they're actually getting worse, and we're, we're still a long way from any kind of uh, conditions conducive to returns. Um, 
And, uh, you know, just to, to quote a couple of people, there was a 70-year-old woman who uh, had been to four different villages in, on her way to get into Bangladesh. And what she said was uh, she saw these abuses in different places and said, I would not dare to say it's safe for people to go back. Um, another woman whose, whose husband was a, a mullah, a, a religious leader, said that uh, she doesn't know, she, she was um, uh, arrested, um, she was forced to flee. She said, I just don't, I don't know why, I just know being a mullah is a crime. So there's, there's still that religious aspect as well. Um, so moving on from that, there's, you know, the, the root causes are still in Myanmar and need to be addressed there. Um, I'll talk about a few recommendations in addition to what uh, Olivia said for what ways to put pressure on Myanmar to address those root causes. But at the same time, there are also uh, increasing concerns about Bangladesh. Um, Bangladesh has been, uh, should be well, has been very, should be praised for welcoming in this huge number of refugees that have come in. But in recent months, there's been uh, increasing restrictions on uh, on Rohingya refugees and, and their ability to even volunteer with uh, NGOs, um, uh, to use uh, cell phones, uh, things that, that are, are really helpful for them in knowing, um, you know, being informed about conditions uh, and uh, being uh, included in any kind of um, <coughs> serious discussions about whether to repatriate or um, now to be relocated potentially to this island in the, in the Bay of Bengal. Um, Bashan Char. Um, so on repatriation, um, you know, there's there's often, I think the, the officials in Bangladesh and others will say, um, this is, you know, we, we went through the exercise to give people that opportunity. Uh, we had buses waiting for them. Nobody showed up. This just shows it's, that's that's all on Myanmar, no harm. Um, but in reality, it, it is, um, it is ha causing harm when you go through these exercises. And there's people who find themselves on the list for repatriation who don't know how they got onto that list. Um, and, you know, uh, reports of attempted suicides and just general re-traumatizing of a, of a, a largely traumatized uh, population already. Um, and then on, just quickly on, uh, on Bashan Char, the island, the um, the uh, plans to move Rohingya to Bashanchar are moving apace. Um, there will be a, um, an international uh, assessment next week, um, so that uh, it will be delayed a, a little bit, at least, um, from what um, the authorities in Bangladesh had wanted. Uh, but there's a lot of concerns about um, uh, Rohingya who, found once again, found themselves on the list and, and don't know why or being coerced um, by leaders in the camps. So... Uh, a lot of unanswered questions about protection, freedom of movement, um, and and logistics and protection when there are when there is flooding um, or cyclones. What's going to happen? So that continues to be a concern. Um, and I'll just end with a with a few recommendations, just to to echo the need for um, for accountability through um, international criminal court or an ad hoc tribunal or. Uh, in any way that it can be pursued. So the uh, International Court of Justice, the case introduced by the Gambia, we, we, we largely support that. And then the need for targeted sanctions on military-owned enterprises and on military leaders. Um, sustained humanitarian aid, pushback on moves like the Bashan Char to make sure that uh, they tr any kind of movement or repatriation truly is safe, voluntary, and informed. Um, and that uh, Rohingya are included in these discussions. And then finally, just an appeal for, for U.S. leadership, where um, you've seen um, 
some senior officials have engaged. Uh, Vice President Pence uh, confronted uh, Aung San Suu Kyi at the U.S. ASEAN summit last year. Uh, didn't attend this year, um, and but we haven't seen the president himself talk about one of the worst um, mass atrocities that's happened um, uh, during his time. Um, the only thing we've seen is where a Rohingya leader came to um, attended the uh, international. Uh, religious Freedom Forum, and uh, when he asked President Trump about uh, assistance for the Rohingya, um, President Trump said, uh, where is that? Um, so not a very encouraging sign, and so just an appeal, which I think uh, some of the other um, uh, panelists will, will uh, go into a little bit more, but um, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Olivia. Uh, thanks, everybody. I'm uh, really grateful to to be here, and it's it's nice to see all of you here. Um, so the 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 plan I was going to to share a bit of our uh, documentation with regard to the crime of genocide, and and I think um, rather than just simply recap what's taken place over the last um, couple years, I thought I would do a recap of uh, events in Rakhine State since 2012. I mean, one can can um, um, very reasonably go back decades uh, in taking a look at, at, at the atrocity crimes. But um, going back to 2012, uh, particularly for, for anybody here who might not be as familiar with the last several years, um, there was tit-for-tat violence in Rakhine State between uh, Muslims, uh, mostly Rohingya Muslims and Buddhists, mostly Rakhine Buddhists. Um, I was there at the time. At the time, I was working with Human Rights Watch, uh, and um, I had documented uh, how uh, Rakhine, uh, initially Rakhine had killed Rohingya, and Rohingya had also killed Rakhine. And then this quickly escalated into what were targeted state-sanctioned attacks against uh, not only Rohingya, but also Kaman Muslims. Um, so similar to the more recent attacks, uh, taking a look at what happened in 2012, I think is, is, it's disturbing, but it's also instructive. There were also two waves of violence back in 2012, in June, first in June and then in October. The second wave of violence back then uh, was more coordinated and catastrophic, very similar to what happened recently. Um, so back in 2012, there was ultimately uh, violence in 13 out of the 17 townships in Rakhine State. Um, Armed civilians and state security forces committed massacres. They committed mass rape. They burned homes down. Um, and at the time, there was one particular case uh, that I was recalling the other day and thinking about remarks to share here today, and it was the situation in Yante Village in Raku Township. So on October 23rd, 2012, mobs of armed civilians, effectively supported by state security forces, descended on Yante Village. They massacred 70 people. 28 of those people that they massacred were children. 13 of those children were under the age of five. They were all buried in mass graves. There was no accountability whatsoever. Um, so tellingly, just before that attack, uh, state security forces had gone into the village and effectively and, and disarmed the Rohingya civilians. Uh, so they took away sticks, knives, other sharp equipment that could be used in self-defense. This is exactly what we saw in, in the lead up to 2017. Um, it's often stated that those attacks in 2012 displaced uh, 120,000, mostly Rohingya. And as, as Dan mentioned, that's because there are 120, roughly 128,000 uh, Rohingya confined to uh, just over 20. I think the last count was like 28 internment camps, maybe, in, in five different townships. 
Um, but uh, those attacks in 2012 actually displaced a lot more than 120,000 people. Between 2012 and 2015, uh, there were at least, uh, and it's a conservative estimate, at least 170,000 Rohingya boarded ships bound for Thailand and, and Malaysia. Um, and um, many of those people died at sea. Many of those people were uh, died in, in, in Thailand or in Malaysia. Many are buried in mass graves. Some of those mass graves haven't even uh, been accounted for yet. So the death toll stemming from 2012 is considerably higher than has ever been acknowledged. And certainly the displacement is a lot higher than just the people who are eking out a living confined to these internment camps. Um, in 2014, some of you may recall, there was a group of Rohingya who um, attacked and killed a, uh, a member of the Myanmar police force. Uh, the authorities responded brutally um, and uh, uh, killed untold number of civilians in a village called Duchiradan. Um, I've met and interviewed survivors and eyewitnesses of the Duchiradan massacre. The UN reported on it. Rohingya reported on it extensively. And despite the evidence, there are actually still members of the diplomatic community who don't believe anything happened in that village. Um, one year later, in 2015, this is when at Fortify Rights we started to call for an independent international investigation of the situation in Rakhine. Um, we published a, a report that year with a team from Yale Law School um, that found uh, strong evidence that the crime of genocide was taking place in Rakhine, in Rakhine State then. So this is 2005. This is more than a year before the October 2000, uh, 2016 attacks and obviously a couple years before the, 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 the even larger attacks. Um, this, uh, the 2015 report that, that that we put out found evidence of state responsibility for genocide as opposed to individual criminal liability. And so this issue of state responsibility has gained uh, some considerable traction just this week with the Gambia uh, filing an application for a case against Myanmar for genocide at the International Court of Justice. Um, so this brings us, uh, of course, up to the attacks in 2016, 2017. Um, and obviously, it's, it's been very well established following ARSA's two uh, attacks uh, that killed a handful, several uh, uh, state security forces, um, soldiers and civilian perpetrators slit throats. They fatally shot Rohingya at close range and at distances. Uh, many people were burned alive. Um, they laid landmines that killed and maimed civilians as they fled. Soldiers uh, stomped infants and threw some into rivers and flames. Uh, raped and gang-raped women and girls in horrific numbers, um, in some cases, mutilated bodies. So the authorities also were destroying homes. They were destroying civilian objects, civilian homes, uh, religious structures, means of subsistence, all of the types of things that, that, that point to the crime of genocide. The dominant narrative um, at the time was that, um, which many governments even came to accept, was just that the Myanmar military responded spontaneously to the ARSA attack. And what we were able to demonstrate in a report we published in July 2018 was that they had actually made extensive preparations for those attacks. The Myanmar authorities have, that is. I'd be happy to, to share more about, um, about those specific preparations. But um, uh, specifically on the crime of genocide, the crime of genocide requires the commission of one of five prohibited uh, uh, acts, um, criminal acts committed against a protected group with the intent to destroy in whole or in part. So our report analyzes um, what our documentation in the context of the Genocide Convention. And what we found was that, you know, we found similar to the fact-finding mission report, reasonable grounds to believe that um, 
the Myanmar Army, police force, border guards, and civilian perpetrators committed atrocities that constitute genocide. Um, so uh, in terms of recommendations and, and you know, what the U.S. in particular could do, um, for starters, we're suggesting that all governments, not just the U.S., but certainly the U.S., could support, could and should support the Gambia's case at the ICJ. Um, uh, they, the, the authorities could issue, the government could issue public statements. They could provide financial, diplomatic, substantive support. Um, it would be helpful if the U.S. Uh, issued interpretations of the Genocide Convention with regard to the crimes against the Rohingya. Um, this would, this would uh, assist the Gambia's case. Um, and in theory, that, sh that shouldn't be particularly challenging given the amount of evidence that the State Department has collected. Um, and further to that, we are calling on, uh, on the U.S. government to issue a genocide determination on the situation uh, of, the, of the Rohingya in Myanmar. Um, we've also called for and are continuing to call for the establishment of a criminal tribunal to investigate and try the crimes uh, in the absence of a U.N. Security Council referral to the ICC. Um, uh, a, a criminal tribunal could be established, um, and there's, there's, of course, precedent there. Um, like others, uh, we're also encouraging uh, military owned, uh, the U.S. to sanction military-owned enterprises. Um, some months ago, we did catch wind of this idea circulating that sanctioning military-owned enterprises would somehow hurt the Myanmar economy. We've been speaking with young entrepreneurs in Myanmar uh, who tell us that um, uh, if military-owned enterprises were sanctioned, it would actually enable them to have more market share. It would enable them to, uh, for example, have a shot at what are otherwise no-bid contracts, um, and it would perhaps create a fair economy. Um, lastly, I would just I just want to take a chance to to, to just to close. I want to mention um, the emphasize that the language and the findings in the 2018 fact-finding mission report with respect to the crime of genocide are actually a lot more explicit and clear than many people have acknowledged. Um, on an almost weekly basis, we, we're, we're seeing um, it suggested that the fact-finding mission somehow didn't make a genocide determination or um, you know, that's for a court to decide. We hear that very often. So um, if you take a look at the fact-finding mission report, uh, uh, the large report, the 441-page report, um, the section on genocide, they find that, one, the Rohingya are a protected group under the Genocide Convention. Two, perpetrators committed four of the five acts of genocide. And three, that perpetrators demonstrated genocidal intent. That is a genocide determination. Um, so building on that, the report says, and here I quote, it is now for a competent prosecutorial body and a court of law to investigate and adjudicate cases against specific individuals to determine individual guilt or innocence. So what the fact-finding mission, they, what they did not say it's for a court to determine if, if genocide occurred. What they said was genocide occurred, and now it's for a court to determine what specific individuals are responsible for that. And so I think, um, uh, you know, whether it's governments, human rights organizations, or journalists, I think it's, it, it's very helpful. It could be very helpful for us to go back and revisit what the fact-finding mission uh, actually said. So uh, uh, again, thank you so much. And um, yeah, I'll end there. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. All right. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Dan and Matt, for your um, very insightful presentation. And I echo uh, you both and the report of the fact-finding mission. One of the things that I realized uh, at the fact-finding mission report is that the recommendations are very constructive and holistic. 
And I think we have to look into that. When we approach accountability processes, we have to be holistic. Um, what does that mean is uh, even, let's say, if we're able to prosecute the crimes of genocide, we might not still be able to address the root causes in the ground. We might not be able to, um, you know, we might not see the, the actual change in the ground. That is why we believe they all kind of pressures and uh, holistic approach on the accountability is essential, which include economic disengagement of economic, economic activities with the military uh, in Myanmar and um, all other uh, sanctions, including arms, arms embargo, and you know, all of you know, uh, have been calling. Um, and um, at the same time, um, I, I guess that when we talk about root causes, as I said, um, the crimes of genocide, uh, it's beyond crimes of genocide. The root causes, what we uh, have been talking about, sometimes it has not been clear among each other, among uh, between us, what does that mean by root causes. For us as a Rohingya, uh, the root cause of the, uh, the conflict itself, crisis itself, is first denial of the Rohingya's existence as a group in the country. It's not just about denial of a name, but it's the denial of the group existence and the rights, the rights, the political, social rights uh, as a group in the country, the equal rights of a group in the country. In Western um, world, it is difficult to understand what is the group rights mean. It has always been from the individual uh, right approach. Whenever the uh, NGOs or government approach to talk with the Burmese government, it's end up having the individual rights approach. And I, I do believe that is, that makes sense and it is easier uh, for the Western world to understand and to solve the conditions. Like if you are able to improve like individuals, Rights, for example, like granting them citizenship, granting me, Weiwei, or Matt citizenship rights. Uh, they assume that you can uh, basically restore rights of the people. But in reality, in the context of Myanmar, it is uh, much more complex than individual rights. While uh, as a group, if we are denied, when we call for the individual rights, we will never get the individual equal rights. We will end up getting lesser rights. What does that mean is the lesser rights mean you might be able to, uh, I might become a naturalized citizen. It's mean for the Western American, it is, it makes sense you, you have citizenship rights and you are able to vote. But in Myanmar, it's the, the naturalized citizens or lesser citizenship rights, is, it's, it's very discriminatory and it is uh, very problematic. So to achieve equal citizenship rights and equal rights in Myanmar, we have to be able to uh, you know, acknowledge, uh, the government has to acknowledge and uh, recognize the, uh, the Rohingya as a group and their Rohingya rights. Um, uh, so I think uh, sometimes the, some of the um, organizations and the countries think that has been controversial until unless we are able to address the group rights, uh, the uh, Rohingya's rights, uh, we might not be able to 
address the root causes. There will be always discrimination uh, in the country and always apathetic-like condition. So that's that's I think the most essential. Um, and you know, the, sometimes I also feel like a majority of I mean, many people in terms of uh, when you talk about Burma, um, you know, they've been kind of normalizing the uh, normal normalizing or internalizing the uh, the Burmese government narrative or, or narrative that the Rohingya does not include in the country. And this is or this is a separate issue. It has to be dealt with it as a separate issue. Or uh, or the people like majority of the Rohingya are already gone. Uh, like mean they become refugees. So you have only few people now. Uh, this is not important to this is um, the, the issue has been somehow uh, separated uh, from the Burmese main uh, politics and main uh, like the, the the whole country's democratizations or all these processes. It's somehow internalized by many many of us, and that ha that is something that I think we have to be very careful. For example, we have elections in 2020, um, and nobody has been actually talking about Rohingya's political rights, which has been there until 2010. We were able to participate in all elections in the country since 1935 to uh, 2010, and the Rohingya were able to vote and be able to participate. And it has only been a disenfranchise in the last elections in 2014. But you know, no elections actors has seems to be talking about this issue. So I think this is very important that you oh, take actions, uh, you know, call the US government to, to, to talk about uh, the political rights of the Rohingya in next up, uh, upcoming elections in 2020. Um, I think these are two uh, major thing that I would like to highlight. One other thing that I would like to talk about is the Dong San Suu Kyi government policy. We talk about criminal accountability, you know, uh, sanctioning military and its businesses. Uh, I mean, that's great and that's very essential and important. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge that Dosu government is part of the problem now. And they are the perpetrators for the ongoing genocide, ongoing uh, persecution. The Dosu government is the most responsible uh, government that has been legalizing all these discriminatory practices, uh, uh, discriminatory policies, and continuing the apartheid condition in, in Rakhine State. As Dan has said, they are so-called Rakhine Estate uh, uh, Advisory Commission's recommendations uh, implementation has been actually um, used to create further uh, apartheid and segregations in Rakhine State. Uh, for example, the, the, the case of Kem's closure, there is no plans of uh, return of the uh, Rohingyas to their places of origin, whether for the IDPs or the, for, for, the, uh, for the refugees. Their plan is to build camps and, and, and these so-called modern villages uh, where they will concentrate the majority of the Rohingya and isolate the continue these segregation practices. And that has 
been very, very problematic. And that's just one example. All other approaches in terms of education, healthcare, everything has been the same. And her government is, you know, being democratic government, she's the one who is denying the entire uh, uh, crimes in Rakhine State and refusing to engage with the international uh, mechanisms. So including fact-finding missions and double I, double M. And she, her government has been actively uh, trying to whitewash uh, the, uh, the military's crimes in Rakhine State by setting up this so-called uh, independent commissions of inquiry and other effort. So they have been putting so much effort to really uh, try to uh, you know, undermine international advocacy processes and accountability processes. Our government has funded an NGO, uh, the Myanmar Trade Union, to submit um, a letter, uh, a submission to the ICC, basically, so that, you know, to, 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 to um, uh, provide the government narrative of the condition. And so there are many other efforts that her government has been doing, uh, you know, since she, they came into power. And, um, and uh, actually, her government has announced uh, last year to conduct a research uh, um, on the Rohingya to prove that Rohingya never exists in the country um, under their religious uh, ministry. So they, they will be releasing the publication uh, research very soon on that. And um, at the same time, um, uh, the criminalizations of Rohingya's movement have continued. Um, even uh, last week of October, uh, 28 Rohingya has been arrested while they're trying to come from Rakhine State to inner part of Myanmar. You know, perhaps they are trying to uh, flee uh, to Malaysia. Uh, we don't know what was their objective to come, but they have been arrested and sentenced to two years. And yesterday, there were seven other Rohingya were arrested, and they will be sentenced to two years, too, uh, which include the children and women um, as well. And this kind of practice has been there uh, for many years. And this... These issues has become very public. The Burmese media uh, publicized this uh, with very um, uh, kind of humiliatory comments and you know titles. Um, and this issue is this the the, the arrest of the Rohingya. Um, they have actually published or they have actually report the cases as a victory for or for. Uh, being able to arrest the Rohingya, uh, illegal Bengali, and the government ha have are uh, is aware of it. Um, her one of uh, her um, the parliamentarian from her party um, has raised a questions at the parliament. How you are? How the gov What is the plan of the government to really? Uh, Father, restrict movement of these people so that they are not able to come inside Burma from Rakhine State. So, this is like a kind of like you know very obvious and uh, public issues that has been happening in the last few months. Yet the practices has continued under these 
uh, the NLD government. So we feel like um, it is time for us to really hold the civilian government accountable as well uh, to stop the ongoing um, persecutions against the Rohingya. It is unacceptable that the democratic government, a democratic government, uh, uh, has been using, um, violating the the international crimes or continue persecuting on persecuting the Rohingya, um, and she, they have been uh, given so much. Uh, kind of, uh, the world has been very reluctant to really call on her and her government's crimes with the, uh, with the name of democracy. The Rohingya, uh, you know, um, the Burmese democracy will never succeed, uh, you know, if the Rohingya are not, Rohingya rights are not restored and secure. Uh, and we cannot uh, expect to have uh, democracy with the expense of Rohingyas. And um, uh, I think that's all for now. I'm happy to answer question. Thank you. Francisco? Great. Um, thank you so much, Olivia and Heritage Foundation, for having this important event. Um, thank you for the other panelists as well, um, particularly Weiwei, who's such a fierce advocate um, uh, on these uh, set of issues and um, outspoken member of her community as well. Um, I know there's nothing else going on in DC, so thank you for, for all being here as we uh, you know, go through our own democratic experiment. Uh, it's, it's good to know that uh, DC can also focus on uh, issues happening in other parts of the world. I've been asked to uh, focus my remarks uh, primarily on sort of U.S. policy with respect to the Rohingya crisis. Um, what I'll say sort of um, about Amnesty International is that we've been documenting human rights abuses um, in Myanmar for decades. And while uh, this event focuses primarily on the Rohingya, it's not just uh, human rights abuses against the Rohingya that's happening um, in Myanmar. And so even uh, as of uh, September of this year, uh, we came out with a report that documented war crimes that were going on um, by the Myanmar military against the Kachin, uh, in, in Kachin and in Shan State. Um, cases of arbitrary detention, torture, um, where the military was using schools um, as barracks against uh, many of the ethnic um, you know, uh, minorities within these part of the country. Um, and it all kind of gets to this sort of one of the main themes, I think, that has come out at this, which is that the military continues to be an unaccountable institution um, that is completely separate from the civilian government. And until there is actual criminal accountability and the international community actually forces the, um, forces the military to change its behavior, um, it's going to continue to act with impunity. Um, so I think that's one of the main things that we've been sort of looking at and focusing on um, when it comes to our, our recommendations that we've been pushing for uh, throughout our, our movement. Um, but on U.S. policy, um, one of the things that I always like to start off with um, when I'm talking about where U.S. policy is on this issue um, is sort of this quote that, um, that was said in May of this year. So President Trump's first uh, Secretary of State um, in a closed testimony with the House Foreign Affairs Committee said that one of their greatest disappointments of his was the situation in Myanmar. And he says that after a lot of hard work, including going there, um, I didn't feel like I was able to move the needle one bit. and It was extremely disappointing to me. 
So this was uh, sort of gave us an insight into how one of the senior administration officials uh, felt despite having, you know, um, in his view, worked um, really hard to sort of improve the crisis um, within Myanmar. But what are the different uh, pillars in U.S. policy with respect to the Rohingya crisis? The first is the humanitarian assistance. Uh, so in September of this year, the U.S. announced more than 127 million in additional humanitarian assistance for Rohingya refugees uh, and host communities in Bangladesh and IDPs, Rohingyas, and members of the affected community inside Burma. And the U.S. still remains the largest contributor of humanitarian response to the crisis in Burma and Bangladesh, providing more than $669 million since the outbreak of violence in August 2017. And during the past 20 years, USAID has provided assistance to vulnerable communities in Myanmar, um, not just in Rakhine, but also in Kachin and Shan State. Um, this was raised by Dan, but uh, this administration in particular has um, sort of used religious freedom, in particular the religious freedom ministerial, to raise the profile and the plight of the Rohingya. Um, there was a statement of concern uh, during the international religious freedom ministerial um, where several, uh, where it was a, the idea was to bring other like-minded countries to sort of join the United States in raising concerns on religious freedom issues in Myanmar. Um, you know, Dan correctly highlighted uh, an instance in which, um, you know, uh, President Trump met with several of these uh, affected communities, um, and we saw where uh, one of those people, Reverend Sampson, an influential leader in Kachin, um, was uh, subsequently threatened after he returned back home. And the United States then uh, subsequently sent a strong statement, um, really putting a spotlight that if anything were to happen to him, uh, there would be serious consequences. Um, Secretary Pompeo, at several instances, has said uh, that you know that they want to see a Burma that uh, where the conditions are um, provide for the safe, voluntary, dignified, and sustainable repatriation for the return of displaced Rohingya. Uh, most recently, as at the East Asia Summit, the United States announced as part of its Indo-Pacific Transparency Initiative um, and part of its public diplomacy program, uh, good governance and uh, freedom of the press uh, type of funding with respect to journalists and educators in Burma um, that sort of helps uh, sort of press freedom and media landscape in Burma so that they could hopefully uh, do more in terms of uh, promoting transparency and good governance within the country. Um, one that is an area that has taken a lot of interest here in Washington, um, including um, by amnesty, is also this idea of sanctions, whether and what form uh, they take. Um, so it's important to remember that in July of this year, uh, the Department of State pu publicly designated uh, individuals, including their family members, um, for gross violations of human rights violations. Um, and according to U.S. law, if they designate them as gross violators of human rights, then they have to be imposed visa sanctions. Um, and that included the commander of, of chief uh, men online, uh, as well as three other uh, military officials. Um, one of the areas that we've highlighted is and pointed out is that <clears throat> in some ways that was already in the books, uh, given that the Jade Act, which was um, you know, enacted in the early 2000s, has passed, um, which is already in, in a law in the book, blocked many of these Myanmar officials already from visiting, um, but it's still an important step uh, for the United States to designate men online as a gross violator of human rights. Um, also, if you look back the year before that, uh, in August of 2018, uh, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned four Burmese military individuals and Border Guard police commanders 
um, and two Burmese military units. Uh, so that's the 99th Light in Infantry Division and the 33rd uh, Light Infantry Division. Um, these are two uh, combatant commands that uh, both Amnesty and Reuters um, identified as being um, complicit in some of the worst uh, human rights abuses uh, that we found in Myanmar and are still, unfortunately, the same units uh, which we documented in September being used in other parts of the country. Um, we also, um, so, you know, that sort of gets to what, what now and sort of where is the human rights community um, sort of looking at um, and, and, you know, and we'll only speak for Amnesty International, one of the areas that we're still very much focused on is sort of what congressional action will happen. Um, so as you all are probably aware, the House of Representatives um, in sort of the summer uh, passed the Burma Act as a standalone bill. Um, it also passed the Burma Act as a part of the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, and so while those negotiations are ongoing um, and there still has not been a conference um, proposal that has been made public um, on uh, sort of whether the Burma Act was included into the final National Defense Authorization Act. We've been calling on particularly senators and Senator McConnell, uh, since we know he's been the main obstacle in the past, uh, to uh, show support for the Burma Act um, and to allow it for final inclusion. Um, we've also uh, been specifically uh, calling uh, for any inclusion of expanding military to military cooperation um, to, to, for that to not be in any uh, final proposal in the military defense authorization bill. And one of our calls actually has been consistently for um, an arms embargo, a global arms embargo. Um, so as part of uh, U.S. congressional law in previous national defense authorization bills, uh, there are really strong restrictions upon, upon any U.S. military cooperation with the Tamada. Um, and so we would think it would be incumbent on the U.S. to use that um, to sort of call for a global arms embargo with other like-minded countries, something you could refer to at the U.N. Security Council or at various U.N. forums, something it has yet to do. Um, another area that they have yet to do as well is um, sort of this idea of a legal determination. Uh, Congress provided um, and appropriated funds for the State Department to conduct their own investigation. Um, and uh, we heard and we were, you know, sort of uh, seeing various of the, of the groups that they were, that were consulting with the State Department that conducted the research with the State Department um, and were very hopeful that that would lead to a legal determination based by the U.S. State Department. Unfortunately, at one point, the State Department decoupled the legal determination process from the documentation process um, and simply issued a report, which was, of course, welcomed because it's always good uh, for the State Department to be doing its own human rights documentation, uh, but it fell short of actually making a legal determination um, whether, you know, which crimes under international law were specifically conducted, whether it's genocide, crimes against humanity, or, um, you know, war crimes. Um, and so that was a real disappointing moment for many uh, civil society advocates um, who were watching U.S. policy uh, pretty closely. Um, this was touched on earlier, um, but there's been a lot that's been going on with respect to international criminal, um, you know, justice mechanisms. And so I think it's incumbent upon the U.S. to also signal its support, uh, whether it's for uh, the IIIM, the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar, um, or whether it's with the most recent case upon though that was discussed earlier um, with respect to the ICJ um, and, Gamb and Gambia sort of filing suit. 
viewed. So there's a lot that the U.S. could be doing in these various multilateral um, bodies. And um, from Amnesty's views, we've been calling them to pursue all routes um, that call for accountability and justice. So I'll, I'll leave it there. And um, you know, thank you for having us again. Great. Well, I should have mentioned at the outset that this event is co-hosted with Refugees International. And when Dan and I were originally thinking up this event and sort of thinking about what we wanted it to be for the future, we really wanted to make sure that on the panel we had a whole range of views and perspectives and priorities that were represented. And obviously, Dan comes with this immense humanitarian background. Um, Matt has done so much work on genocide-related issues and on-the-ground work. Um, in Burma. Of course, Weiwei has the perspective being a Rohingya herself um, of the situation. And then Francisco works on all of the policy issues. And so we wanted it to be both representative in terms of the different policy priorities, but also the different political perspectives. And I think it's fascinating, um, you know, sitting up here just observing this, that pretty much Everyone mentioned the extent to which the Burmese military is the one that is the perpetrators of, of this violence that's going on there, and, and I think that that's something definitely worth dwelling on. I'm going to take the moderator's um, prerogative and ask a question, but in the meantime, those in the audience, please be thinking about any questions that you might have to ask, because we will open it up to the audience. But as the moderator, I just wanted to ask, all of you um, brought up particular policy solutions that you thought were really important, and each of you listed several. If you had only one that the U.S. government could do, what would it be and why? We'll start maybe with Francisco, since he's he's the most policy-focused and offered a ton of recommendations. So if there's like a wish list or just of one? A single wish list and why? Yeah, I, mean, I think it would be for wish. the U.S. to refer the situation to the International Criminal Court. Um, for me, it would be... Um, what I ended with with uh, the need for U.S. leadership and, and a concrete way of doing that is to, and we, we've recommended this in the past, is, is to assign a, a high-level um, administration official to coordinate with, uh, with allies on this to really push for international um, pressure. And, um, yeah, so that would, that would be the main kind of a concrete step that could go towards building that, uh, that pressure. Uh, I would. I think if I had to choose one, um, uh, I, I think I'd agree with Francisco and some sort of something related to uh, justice and accountability. Uh, I think a, you know, like an ICC referral, for example. But part of the reason for that, and the reason why, is that one of our biggest areas of focus is just prevention. Uh, there's a very real risk that you know we could all wake up tomorrow to another round of mass killings. Um, I, I think the certain generals are are a bit concerned, as they should be, about international justice. But um, the more mechanisms that are in place and the more um, avenues that are in place, I think um, one of the effects that hopefully would have would be to prevent future killings. Oh, this is very hard for me. Yeah. You asked me a very hard question to choose. <laughs> like, what which children do you like the most, right? <laughs> Just like that. I'm like... <laughs> I would just say U.S. Um, it's quite discouraging to see uh, U.S. Uh, is kind of U.S. has been a bit um, uh, inactive uh, in the situations of Myanmar. The previous government has failed actually 
uh, not only just inactive, but also failed to prevent the genocide. And this government is somehow ignorant. So it feels very discouraging. So I feel I wish they w- w- they take more active leadership to really bring accountability and justice uh, uh, for the Rohingya in uh, I mean, one of the key essential thing will be referring the case to the ICC or the uh, establishing taking leadership in UNGA uh, to establish an independent criminal court. So that would be uh, the most important thing. Otherwise, they can still leverage in many uh, sector. For example, like in terms of influencing and development aid and and policies and projects. Currently, there is a big project ongoing by the World Bank, and U.S. still can be a crucial role to stop to block the the projects in Rakhine State while the situations remain as apartheid. Uh, you know those kind of things. Being more active role in terms of uh, changing policies in the ground and taking leaderships in the criminal accountability and bringing using their presence inside Burma uh, leverage the power to bring people together uh, you know like maybe basically facilitate a dialogue between the government and Rohingya you know so that we can find a solutions in the ground okay so but don't ask me to choose one it's, it's <laughs> difficult for me um, so I lied about asking only one question I'm, I'm going to permit myself one follow-up question so the general theme um, with all of your guys' answers was the need for accountability and justice and the need for U.S. leadership. Matt, in your remarks, you mentioned um, that there might be alternative judicial mechanisms to pursue. Given that this administration is not very favorable to an ICC referral, what type of alternatives are you thinking about? And how does that um, sort of, how is that born out of the experience with, you know, some of the failures of other um, alternative judicial mechanisms. I'm thinking specifically about the um, ECCC in the uh, Cambodian context. Um, just curious, and, and this is open to everyone on the panel. But Matt, given your comment, yeah. Well, I think you know they, they could exercise authority under Chapter Seven to create a, a, an independent criminal tribunal. The Security Council could, that is. Um, um, and uh, you know, just this morning. Um, the former special rapporteur Tomas Quintana and uh, our Rohingya friend and colleague Tun Kin and his organization and two Argentinian organizations filed for uh, a universal jurisdiction case um, uh, against. Well, they, they've petitioned the court to to um, do a criminal investigation into the Rohingya genocide in Argentina, um, and so it, obviously it doesn't involve the U.S. But I think uh, in terms of alternative. Um, ways to achieve justice. I think seeing more universal jurisdiction cases would be um, would be important. Anyone else? Yeah, I just add that, you know, through the the ICC is pursuing what it feels that it can pursue uh, short of the, the UN Security Council referral. And that is pursuing the um, the crime of deportation, um, because Myanmar is not a, uh, a party to the ICC, but Bangladesh is. <coughs> and so there was an, a finding that because um, this crime of deportation started in, in uh, Myanmar and continued into Bangladesh, which is a, a party that this can be pursued. Um, so that's uh, d- just one more uh, avenue that's being pursued and I, I think is important. Um, so I think um, logistically um, or procedurally, I think if we are able to 
push the U.S. to refer the case to the ICC, it will be very easier as they are already pursuing um, the case uh, on Myanmar. So I think, um, I mean, it is very, it will be very challenging, but we still want to uh, keep hope and keep pushing the U.S. government and others in the Security Council because this is the easiest way in terms of logistic um, Otherwise, you know, establishing a new criminal tribunal is not easy thing. Um, it may have many other challenges. So, I mean, we are still open to that. But if we can, the best case scenario, if we are able to push for the ICC, that would be the best. But we're not going to even open uh, for a discussions about ECCC-like court or hybrid or any uh, any kind of hybrid hybrid tribunal, and it is very dangerous. I don't think in the case of Burma, uh, we should even, you know, mention about it. Totally agree with that. Um, great. So uh, if you have a question, um, we'll have some folks who have uh, a microphone. Please um, ask an actual question and state your name and affiliation. Go here. Hi, I'm Simon Billiness with the uh, International Campaign for the Rohingya. And I thought that, you know, Weiwei Nu made a very good point that it's not about, you know, finding one particular tactic. It's about using a lot of different pressure points and finding ways to coordinate those uh, so that they build on each other. And so I was wondering if you could also speak to uh, the fact that, you know, we're having some, you know, some problems in getting sanctions through Congress. But that's not the only way to, for instance, get at the... Burmese military's business interests. And, you know, there was a very good amnesty report upon uh, Karin Brewing of Japan, uh, which has caused a lot of uh, uh, pressure on that company over its partnership with the Burmese military. So I was wondering if you could speak to um, the uh, uh, effectiveness and scope for campaigns that go directly after the Burmese military's business interests by getting foreign companies to stop doing business with them. I'll start off, but I, although I think other folks, uh, please weigh in afterwards. Um, so we found in the Kirin example, and just so you all know, Kirin is a Japanese beer company. Uh, we had in one of our reports we had found that they basically gave a cash of money. Um, you know, I have to be very careful what I say publicly, but uh, basically. Um, very loosely saying, um, they gave a cash of money to the Myanmar military right before some of the worst atrocities happened. Um, and in one of our reportings, I think it named specific individuals within the Tamada and sort of had, you know, <clears throat> had, had found um, sort of the, the specific timing and, and when and where. So there was a lot of backlash that happened as a result of this, um, particularly in Japan. As you all know, Amnesty International has sections all around the world, and Amnesty Japan really used this as an opportunity to raise um, the pressure on that company, and um, Kirin subsequently, um, you know, made sure it was going to do its due diligence and apologize for it, um, and I, you know, I, I haven't followed the latest in terms of what they did um, after that, but I know that they, um, you know, certainly um, took steps, uh, they paid attention, which I think is ultimately the lesson learned here. Then the question is, how can we use that as a model for other companies? Um, you know, I think other places, and I know you've been working on this, Simon, 
have um, looked at other companies in particular, and um, I don't know if other folks on the panel have have done documentation on other companies. I can just say that in the in since I cover the, the, all of Asia Pacific, that um, no no market is too big for um, public pressure um, for, for, of a company. And, um, you know, so for example, Amnesty International also led the campaign on Dragonfly, Project Dragonfly, which was against Google, who was operating in China, um, which, as you all know, is a much bigger market uh, than Myanmar. And, and because of the power of um, public outcry, the power of um, employees who were concerned about it, um, and just really making sure that the state in the headlines and, in, 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 and then eventually congressional pressure as well um, as a part of that, it really led to effective, um, you know, uh, essentially Google um, announcing the end to Project Dragonfly in China. So, um, you know, I certainly think it could be repl replicated with other industries. So. And just briefly, on the sanctions front, I mean, I think a lot of times we are very focused on new legislation or new authorities that could be used. But as I mentioned and also I highlighted in the paper, um, the Jade Act technically is still relevant. I mean, we can still use those sanctioning authorities. And even without a unique Burma sanctions program at Treasury's disposal, Global Magnitsky can be done in one-off fashions. And so I think that there is this need to really reiterate that the tools are already there. And of course, if you were to see action on Capitol Hill, this would put greater pressure on the administration to make use of tools that they already have and, of course, be aware of other tools that exist. But I think that it is important as you know, civil society actors to just continue to reiterate the fact that tools already exist. And we should be using them to the fullest extent possible. And, and I would also just echo the, the primary money laundering concern designation under Section 311 of the USA Patriot Act. Um, I mentioned that at the beginning. That's something that's on the books. It can be used for any country. And so we need to be thinking about the tools that are already available and using them to the full extent um, as, it, as it's possible and as it's within our means to do so. Great. Yes. Thank you. Hello, Carol Gunsberg with Voice of America. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about efforts to improve conditions for IDP, uh, for people who are actually in the camps. Mm. Dan? In camps in Rakhine State? Sure. So, yeah, as far as uh, improving conditions in Rakhine State, I mean, it's uh, unfortunately continues to be uh, effectively open-air prisons. You know, there there is no freedom of movement. And as I, I mentioned, even when you see camps that have been supposedly closed, um, people are just moving right right next to it and, and don't have any more uh, freedom of movement. And I should say also people we interviewed who, who got the national verification cards didn't get any additional um, benefits for, for freedom of movement. So um, without that freedom of movement fundamentally, it's, uh, you know, it's tough to get uh, conditions to improve um, in, in terms of in Bangladesh, that's, um, I mean, on, on the one hand, if you look at where the camps were on in the first weeks um, and even months to where they are today, um, the conditions have improved in terms of um, uh, you know, just the organization and, and uh, access to services and, and, and more clarity in the referral pathways and things like that. But, um, you know, these are very crowded camps. There's a lot of um, 
uh, you know, criminality. There's a lot of uh, gender-based violence going on. Um, so there's a lot of there are a lot of efforts and resources going in. Um, but I think the the most troubling thing is seeing some of these increased restrictions that are going on, or increased burdens on on NGOs that are working there. Um, so uh, you know, the, the the big risk is that as we get further into this, then you have uh, donor fatigue and um, you know, there's uh, there's less uh, resources there even as the needs continue to go forward. Can I just add something on that too? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah the, so there's there there are still avoidable deprivations in humanitarian aid to the internment camps. Um, uh, education, healthcare, maternal mortality is a big problem. As Dan mentioned, restrictions on freedom of movement. I mean, they're, they're essentially uh, open-air prisons, I think, as you accurately referred to them. But I just want to mention also that the World Bank is contemplating um, develop, development uh, projects in Rakhine State, and they're contemplating uh, uh, doing development work in the camps, um, which, however well-intentioned that may be, uh, there's a very high risk that they will... Um, uh, that uh, any sort of any sort of um, project in the internment camps would um, essentially prop up what is an apartheid system, and so um, we would strongly advise the bank to um, proceed very carefully and very very slowly to make sure that they're not doing harm. Uh, yes, um, because of the restrictions um, the of movement, I think um, there won't be any improvement of the living conditions um, in ITP camps um, until unless they uh, release uh, these restrictions. Um, so yeah, because they can't do anything within inside the uh, camps and they cannot go out to pursue other opportunities um, and uh, and I meanwhile I think there are a, a, you know it's still small chance that we will be able to do some work I think there are some also attention increasing around that uh, basically uh, like more educational skill based uh, programs uh, for the IDP uh, youth and women, and um, and finding a way to do some sort of microfinancing, uh, so some of this innovative way could improve uh, a bit of their life, but it doesn't necessarily mean the situations has um, overall generally would improve until unless they're able to. Uh, uh, return to their places of origin and the government remove the restrictions around them. And I, I know your question is only about IDPs, but I did want to broaden and expound just very briefly on this issue of restrictions, especially on freedom of movement. So one of the reasons that I moved from just like purely outrage after reading the UN fact-finding mission report to like oh, I need to write a report now, was because um, I read in the fact-finding mission report that um, the restriction on freedom of movement for Rohingya to return was actually used as a fundraising mechanism by the Burmese military. So they raised $10.2 million in three separate fundraising efforts. And the fundraising efforts were specifically to build a wall 
so that the Rohingya people could not return to the land that was rightfully theirs. And beyond this, um, you know, this land in many cases has already been burned, has already been bulldozed, has been razed. But the Burmese military had the audacity to go out and fundraise based off of the atrocities that they had committed so that they could further restrict freedom of movement. This is a story that I think needs to be told and told over and over and over again because this is just absolutely blatant violations of the most fundamental aspects of freedom. Um, and I think this is a really, really clear example of that. Um, yes. U.S. AID told if Bangladesh can't stop human trafficking, they will stop funding. Do you think it will create new problem for Bangladesh to helping Rohingya people? Well, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. I think um, um, is your so. I think your question is if 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 uh, if if uh, the U.S government cuts funding because Bangladesh isn't demonstrating progress on trafficking, That what effect would that have on, I see. Well, I mean, I think the answer is really for, for Bangladesh to, um, uh, you know, to make every possible effort to curb human trafficking. Human trafficking from the camps is still a big problem. And in fact, just before the August 2017 attacks, we were speaking with women who had been trafficked from the camps to Middle Eastern countries and were being used essentially as slave labor. Um, and, and so that, that was happening and has been happening for many, many years. But there's other trafficking going on. But I think, yeah, certainly, I mean, um, uh, um, uh, we, would, we, would, we wouldn't want to see resources cut that would otherwise help uh, the refugee population. And uh, just to be clear, the reason that individual countries are placed on various tiers in the annually released State Department's trafficking in persons report is not because human trafficking is occurring in the country, but it measures the extent to which governments are undertaking efforts to comply with the minimum standards to eliminate trafficking in persons. So there may be a country that has a enormous trafficking problem, but is taking efforts to comply with the minimum standards laid out in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Um, and there may be a country that has a more limited trafficking problem, but is not making any efforts to comply. So it's fully within the Bangladesh government's ability to take those efforts to and make those efforts to comply for that situation to be changed. And I believe, I, I may be speaking out of turn here, but USAID funding and its subsequent revocation is most likely based off of Bangladesh's ranking in the trafficking in persons report. And it's fully within the government's ability to make those efforts to comply with the minimum standards. Um, yes, Michael. Um, there's a, a community that I haven't heard much about, which isn't the ones in IDP camps or in Bangladesh, but actually still at home, still in the parts of Rakhine State that were predominantly Rohingya. It also happens to be the area where now the Arakan Army and the Tatmadaw are fighting. Yes. Okay. So I was wondering, there's also uh, an internet blackout in the area that's been imposed. Uh, last I knew, international humanitarian assistance access is highly limited to the region. Media access to the region is also restricted. It's like a little black hole in the country, save for what we get from the government-run media about 
how the conflict's going or other sources. Could any of the panelists sort of address what is the status of the Rohingya population that weren't displaced but actually are uh, still in their communities, but now subject both to this isolation imposed by the Tatmadaw and the Myanmar government, as well as now the conflict with the Arakan army? Um, can I? Um, so, so one of the <laughs> very important factor that we have to recognize here is after the fighting between the AA and Myanmar military, the Rakhine and the Rohingya has come to, uh, in a, you know, like cons not consensus in a way that um, I guess has the the building and the trust between the two community has sort of um, improved. Um, there has been so much communication, actually even to me as well, like the Rakhine activists and um, like youth are sending me messages and information to what is going on in Rakhine side as well as the Rohingya side. And they are asking me that this is a fight against the Burmese um, intruders. We have to fight together. So that's one thing that we have to recognize, acknowledge. And I think it's very uh, important. Uh, the Myanmar, Myanmar government has been saying that, you know, we cannot improve the situations in Rakhine State because these people don't like each other. And that's a lie. That's not true. Uh, the secondly, what is the situations in the, in the ground for the Rohingya uh, in the villages? Um, I would say that their situation is not different as people in IDP camps. People in IDP camps are um, concentrated in a large camp, but the people in the villages, um, those who are not in IDP camps, are concentrated in their own villages, with uh, even small number uh, among with among small number of uh, 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 people. Uh, what does that mean? Is they they cannot communicate. Uh, with the people from outside of their, most of the time outside of their villages. So they cannot travel still from one village to another village. So that's one aspect when it's come to the freedom of uh, movement. On the other hand, the security side of, uh, of it is very concerning uh, because the safety and security has further entrenched uh, because of the fighting. Uh, they have no protection. So for the Rakhine, if they are being targeted uh, or attacked by the Myanmar military, they, you know, somehow there is uh, the commun uh, community uh, protection sort of uh, environment. And the AA, there is some sort of protections from, uh, you know, from the side of uh, AA as well, while AA uh, also has been increasingly violating uh, the human rights uh, during the fighting. So the, basically, uh, there are more and more forced laborers against uh, of, of the Rohingya by both uh, AA and the uh, Burma military. There are extrajudicial killing. Uh, the the uh, fighting the, the the fighting has uh, directly been affected. Um, uh, not only the Rohingya, but also the Rakhine, both community has been uh, killed and dead due to the uh, uh, fighting and, um, and um, you know, and forced disappearance and arbitrary arrest has been ongoing. I talked to my grandma last week. Um, they wanted to buy 
a small refrigerator because my grandma is eighty-five years old, and she need like you know regular. If they if they cannot go to the market, they need to store some food. But yet they did not buy it. I when I called last week, they said I we did not buy because the fighting is ongoing. Um, next to the village, so we don't know what will happen. We don't know when we have to run uh, from the village. So the situation is very uncertain and very, very concerning. So, yeah. And just quickly, that that's exactly the population I was talking about. Of who I who I interviewed was people coming from those areas, talking about what those conditions were like. Where you did have the forced labor, you hear about people saying they were taken for a few days and and building what they described as maybe security posts. They weren't sure. Um, people being released from prison but forced to take the national verification cards yeah. um, but not seeing any improvement in their freedom of movement. <coughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, to the point that uh, things aren't getting better. It calls it and, and not having uh, a, a true uh, vision of what's going on there or having access for uh, outside observers it calls into question all of the things we've been talking about from repatriation to any kind of World Bank uh, development efforts. Um, um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it hasn't been getting better. It's actually getting worse, and, and there needs to be more uh, transparency and access for uh, international observers, independent observers. Sir, you've been very patient over there. <laughs> West Wrist, uh, American Society of International Law. All of you in your proposals for things that we could do moving forward, those policy recommendations were things that relied on U.S. government agents and actors taking steps. Um, but the current status of the atrocity prevention groups in the different agencies and the interagency task force is horribly understaffed, um, some of them quite dramatically so. And as is the nature with policy considerations in the U.S. government, there's fighting about whose pet projects or whose issues take the lead. Um, we just heard like a week ago that the September report for how much foreign direct investment facilitated by the U.S. government that went into Myanmar was like $4.1 billion. And the Myanmar investment promotion plan, I think it's called or something, is like an aim for $20 billion or $200 billion over the next 20 years. And you've clearly got commercial interests trying to promote that from a UN pol or U.S. policy perspective. So what's the, like all of these wonderful recommendations, what's the actual method forward when you don't have the policy people in the administration or in the agencies who are physically able to make those assertions or don't have the political clout to win out the policy argument when they're competing with the economic or regional desks that are promoting something different than the atrocity prevention or accountability mechanisms? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Um, unfortunately, um, and this is not just true to Burma, but um, as you look throughout the region, you have economic um, forces and military um, forces who want to um, define the relationship um, between the U.S. and the region. Um, oftentimes, uh, human rights concerns get sidelined uh, to the bottom. I mean, yes, the atrocity um, prevention uh, mechanisms in a lot of these agencies are depleted. Yes, morale is really bad. Um, it's not. There are there are nobody to talk to. Uh, there are some folks that we meet with pretty regularly, um, and including in the National Security Council. So I don't want to make it sound like there's no one you know moving paper forward. But um, I mean that you know. 
that is a that is a problem, right? So personnel is policy, and if there's no personnel, uh, there's not a lot of policy going forward. But I think so. That your other point, it's a question of political will. Um, there's plenty of legal authorities. There's plenty of ideas, solutions. If there's not political will, and to get to Dan's point, particularly at the highest level, um, you know, the fact that President Trump announced visa sanctions four days before meeting with a Myanmar official, but then not knowing uh, what country that person was from or or where that country was from, um, really speaks to the lack of leadership, um, you know, that unfortunately um, is at the helm of U.S. policy on, on Myanmar. But um, as advocates, what we can try to do is identify those individuals who are in the, in the bureaucracy, empower them to have all the resources and, and tools that they need to be able to um, affect the national security decision-making process, and hopefully things get, get done. I mean, we haven't, you know, we haven't seen nothing, I wouldn't say that, as sort of the, I laid out um, in, in sort of my five minutes. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully we can try to see more. And that's where Congress also plays a role, um, so... Yeah, I was going to say, not to be cliche, but I mean, that is one of the elements of the U.S. political system that, you know, does in some ways make it resilient. But you have many branches of government. If the executive branch isn't doing it, you can put greater pressure on Congress to do what it needs to do. And I think Congress has long been um, the vehicle, especially for promotion of human rights, because the way the bureaucracy is set up, and this is not unique to this administration under Obama, under Bush, it doesn't matter um, whether it's an R or a D in the White House, the way that State Department and even DOD and even the NSC are set up, human rights issues are siloed from the regional bureaus, which everyone, even, you know, your average person who's going into a State Department bureaucracy, when they're a young, you know, whippersnapper and they're going into that bureaucracy, they don't want to work in DRL. They don't want to work the Religious Freedom Office. They don't want to work in the trafficking space because they know that the way that it's currently structured actually de-emphasizes human rights. And it makes it seem as though human rights issues are separate from or in addition to or a optional priority if we happen to have time to do it. And the reality is, is that these issues, whether it's economic issues, national security issues, or human rights issues, are interlinked. And the responsibility for us as civil society is to call out government on this, to make it clear that there are national interest-based, national security-based, economic-based reasons for them to act on human rights issues, and vice versa, too. Um, but I think that case isn't always being made, and it needs to be made more forcefully, needs to be made more thoughtfully and more strategically. And so I think we shouldn't feel totally you know, uh, disempowered by the fact that maybe some bureaucrats um, in the executive branch aren't acting, but we should you know, really think about the other avenues that we do have for, for affecting change and, and work with those who are willing within the executive branch to, to move forward on, on those things. Um, unfortunately, we do have to close out the program. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. If you have questions, I, I think some of us will be able to stay up here and, and hopefully answer them, I, especially yours. Sorry to miss you, but um, thank you again for joining us. And if you didn't get a copy of um, both Francisco's report and, and uh, my report, please feel free to grab it on the way out. Thank, Thank you. you <laughs>